Hey, I'm Mary Ellen Dance, licensed mental health counselor and owner of Pittsburgh Therapy. I'm on a mission to strip away the stigmas surrounding therapy and mental health and talk about how we can use the culture of self-improvement for our benefit rather than our demise. I used to think I was doing life all wrong, from getting fired from a dream job to advising clients on relationships while I myself was trying to sort through that dumpster fire. But then I realized my imperfections are what made me a good therapist. So join me on a journey not to be perfect, but to be, well, okay-ish. Welcome. Your session has now started. Welcome to OK-ish. I am so happy you are here with me today. I have an amazing guest to talk to on this fabulous Monday. Her name is Tatiana Frost, and she runs the Instagram account Having Bipolar. She is a mental health educator and advocate. So welcome. Thanks so much for being here. Thank you. I'm so happy to be here. I'm really excited to chat with you guys. So we're, I obviously want to talk about bipolar since, you know, your Instagram is called having bipolar. But before we talk about that, can I just ask you like how you got started in talking about this advocating for all of that? Yeah, so I was formally diagnosed at 17. And when I first got my diagnosis, I really had a hard time kind of communicating about it because I felt a lot of shame and the weight of the stigma was really heavy. But I also knew that by not talking about it, it felt like I was just adding to the problem and I wasn't creating a solution. And so my first experience actually talking about my diagnosis was when I was a senior in high school. I think I was 18. And there was an organization near where I lived that every year they did this annual, I think it's called the Storyteller event. And I'd heard about it through my art therapist at the time because I was complaining to her. I was like, oh, I wish there was an organization nearby. This was in Rhode Island, by the way, an organization nearby that did mental health advocacy and that kind of thing. And my art therapist was like, oh, well, there is. And she gave me their email. And so I emailed them and I was just like, hi, um, I have no experience doing this and I'm newly diagnosed, but I really, really want to talk at your speech thing. And so they emailed me back. I was actually on a trip to Washington, to Washington, DC at the time. And they emailed me back. I was so excited. I was like, Oh my God, yes. And so I ended up going to their offices and chatting with them. And that was the first time that I'd really talked to somebody outside of my immediate circle about my diagnosis. And they let me speak at their event. It was incredible. The whole event was so, so just amazing because I got on stage and I was really, really nervous because I didn't really talk to anybody about my diagnosis previously. And there is 200 plus people in that room watching you wow. on stage. It was very formal. Wow. And I was, I was so, so nervous at first, but it ended up being a completely unforgettable experience because the amount of love and support that just came through the audience. And then afterwards, there's a little cocktail hour after the event and people came up to me and they were like, wow, your story really inspired me. And they would tell me about their experience with bipolar. And it was incredible. And when I got that taste of it, I was like, oh, I want to just hold on to that forever. And then I actually didn't start the bipolar Instagram account for a couple years after that. I started it during quarantine because I was really struggling with family stuff and 
I never really had a community of people who had the same experience as me before. And I kind of just started it like on a whim. It was just like an idea. And then it ended up getting a lot of attention from people who had similar experiences. And it just created this amazing community. And so now I'm really lucky because I can talk to people like you about my experience and share how I got started with all of it. Okay, that's incredible. Like what you've done is amazing. And that first event, like you must have been like scared shitless. <laughs> I, I, was, I was so nervous. I spent months ahead of the event prepping my speech. Oh, months. And I only had 12 minutes. It wasn't like it wasn't anything huge. I had 12 minutes to talk about my story and my experience. And for months, I wrote and rewrote and rewrote. I think day before the actual event, I also rewrote my speech again, because I was overthinking it way too much. And honestly, looking back at it now, I would change absolutely everything. <laughs> but at the time, it was appropriate. So it was incredible. And I was so fortunate to have that opportunity. It really opened up this whole world that I hadn't been exposed to before in the mental health community. It was incredible. Well, and I imagine when you were first diagnosed at 17, 17 is really, really young. And so being first yeah. diagnosed, like, did you feel alone? Did you feel scared? Did you feel like, oh my gosh, am I crazy? Like, what? how did you feel? I felt all of those things. So I was diagnosed, I spent about a month in patient, or I spent like three weeks in patient treatment at a psychiatric facility. And then I spent another two to three weeks in an outpatient treatment program. But that was every day. It was like a full-time job. Like I think it was like nine to three or something yeah. like that every day. But there was actually nobody in my psych ward or in my outpatient treatment that had bipolar disorder, which was really interesting. So I felt a little isolated in that. And then I was actually on the older side of a lot of the people who were in that treatment. And so even in the group therapies, I didn't really always feel like I could relate to them because some of the people were as young as like 13 who were there and they were talking about certain problems. And so I did feel pretty alone. And honestly, I mean, what I did was I really just, I read every single book. I watched every single documentary. I read every case study, partially because I wanted to inform myself because this was a new diagnosis, a whole new experience. And I wanted to be educated. You know, I wanted to understand how does bipolar work? What triggers it? Is it genetic? How much of it is genetic? I wanted to know, you know, is this something you can pick up in younger children or is it like something that doesn't happen to older? And so dealing with this feeling of like not having anybody to really share the experience with because I was also adopted. And so my parents and my brother aren't biologically related. So they didn't have that same mental health background. And so I spent a lot of time reading memoirs and watching documentaries. Some documentaries probably painted an inaccurate picture, but I was just kind of grasping onto anything that I could really relate to at the time. Wow. And you're actually really lucky. Well, I should ask you, I shouldn't say you're lucky. How do you feel about the fact that as soon as you got a diagnosis, you were put into treatment? Like, that's pretty cool. Unfortunately, that doesn't always happen that way. Well, no, I was, I was actually given my diagnosis at the end of my treatment. I went into okay. treatment because I started noticing probably six months or so before I went into treatment that something was just not right. I had struggled with depression probably since I was about 13. Even I, I even have a diary entry from when I was 10 where I talk about wishing I was dead and how nobody mm. loves me. So I know that I struggled with depression for a long time, but 
the mania didn't happen until I was about 16, 17. And that's really when I started to feel like something was more wrong than just a regular teenage depression thing going on, right. you know? And so I had initially seeked some help on my own. I made an appointment at this uh, clinic nearby and I hadn't told like my parents or any of the adults in my life because I didn't grow up talking about mental health. And so I didn't know how to approach that to my parents. And I was really nervous because I was also playing a lot of Dr. Google at the time. And so I was worried, like, am I just making this up in my head? Like, maybe I'm overthinking all of this and I'm just like a moody teenage girl. Who knows? And so I went, I spoke to the people there. They told me mood stabilizers, therapy. And I thought, oh, crap, (laughs) you know, shoot, this is like a real problem. It's I'm like getting suggested treatment. Holy moly. Right. They're not suggesting, you know, exercise. They're suggesting. Right. Right. They're like medication therapy. I was like, well, now I know it's cool. So I ended up telling my mom a few weeks after that, and I didn't really get the response I was hoping for. The response was, your iron's low. I think you're just lonely. And so, yeah. So, and part of it is just because, you know, my parents don't have a lot of experience with mental health in their families. And so I know that for them, it was all really new. And I can imagine as a parent, having your child come to you with something such as, I feel like I have like this mental disorder, this is why, that can be really scary. I know my mom felt after I was diagnosed, kind of like, what did she do wrong as a parent? Like, is there something she could have done to avoid it? And it's unfortunate because there's not. It's just one of those things that, you know, happens if it happens you know it's nobody's fault which is hard to accept because you want something to blame you know you you want to put the blame of this awful experience onto something or someone but you just can't Uh, yeah absolutely it's easier to put the blame on something and you know Mm -hmm. I imagine as hard as it was for you to you know have your mom respond in that way like I'm sure there was a fair amount of denial on her part like she doesn't want yeah. her, her baby of to course. Be suffering you know of course so even yeah. though that affected you negatively like she had to go through her own process of accepting it also absolutely yeah it was really tough and so after that experience I had essentially asked my mom I was like hey I'm having these feelings and I'm really struggling and I I think I like need therapy and I didn't really get anywhere with that. I even found a therapist on my own and just asked her to sign the paperwork and she never signed it. And that was really, really hard to deal with because it felt like I was reaching out for help to the people who were supposed to help me and I wasn't getting it. And so that kind of made everything just so much worse. And I ended up getting into therapy because I had a breakdown at school. I just kind of hit my last draw and I went down to the counselor at my school and think I was so fortunate because my high school had a very, very helpful and small program that they were able to get me into therapy the next day. So I was super, super grateful for that. And I did therapy for a little while. And even in therapy, we kind of danced around the whole bipolar thing because it seemed pretty clear, but there was no formal diagnosis. And to be completely honest, I didn't really want there to be because when you put an official label on it, that makes everything real. Yeah. If it's real, then you have to deal with it. Yeah. And Denial is a wonderful place to be. (laughs) Incredible. It's incredible. It it was incredible, but still like completely horrible because I wasn't fixing any of my problems. Because you were not Um, feeling well. (laughs) 
<laughs> right. And so I ended up getting into psychiatric treatment because I drove myself to the emergency room. I like finished my shift at my part-time job. And i had been thinking about it for a couple of days because I knew I wasn't getting better. I was unmedic- unmedicated at the time as well. And so I knew I wasn't getting better. I felt like I was getting worse. And I knew that I didn't have the support system or the tools in place to help myself or to like get the help with what I currently had. And so I drove myself to the emergency room and I told them, I was like, hey, I'm a danger to myself. I'm going to kill myself. And I was very lucky because I got into treatment that night. I did wait forever. People don't talk about that. When you go to the hospital to get psychiatric treatment, you will be in like a, what, what's it called? The um triage center. You yeah. will be in a triage for like five hours. I feel like more. five hours is like good. Nothing. Yeah, yeah, yeah. I hear so many stories of people that like, <laughs> they just end up going home because they're like, oh, well, yeah. it doesn't feel as yeah. bad anymore that I've sat here for eight hours. So I'm just going to go Literally. home, go to, go to bed yes. and maybe I'll come back, which is right. And this is nothing against hospitals. It's just, you know, it's, it's yeah. what it is. Yeah. But I'm just like floored by the fact that you drove yourself and you said like, I don't feel safe. Like the vulnerability, the str- like just there are not even words to describe that. Like, that's incredible. That's incredible. Thank you. Thank you. It was, it honestly, to me, I hear that a lot because whenever I tell the story, that tends to be people's reactions and I appreciate it. But on the other hand, it's like, it's not as brave as it sounds, or at least from my perspective, because it wasn't like I was making a, or at least it didn't feel like I was making a brave choice because to me, it was like, life or death? Am I going to get treatment and do better? Or am I going to just like resign to this life and probably kill myself? Mm-hmm. So it, it was a tough thing because everyone says, Oh, you're so brave. And, and I appreciate it. And that's great. And I can recognize the bravery that came from it. But on the other hand, it didn't feel that way at the moment. It felt like, okay, well, I'm either going to go get treatment and feel better and live a normal life, or I'm just going to give up on myself. Yeah. Right. Yeah. Well, and I think that you just said something so, so important. I'm either going to get treatment and live a regular life, I think is what you said. Yeah. And here's the thing. So, so many people don't realize that bipolar disorder is treatable. Yes. It's crazy. (laughs) Yes. Yes. First of all, bipolar disorder is common. It is a common disorder. You can look it up. It's not rare. It's very mm. common. They're so common. I actually, I was talking to my boyfriend literally just this morning about a friend of his who is possibly getting a diagnosis. And so it's super common. Yeah. Oh, yeah. And I think, honestly, I think the reason people think it's not, or it's hard to treat is because there's this stigma around it about being one of those disorders where people think you're crazy and I talked about this before where I feel like when it came to like the mental health acceptance train was driving through all the disorders, they were like, we're going to pick up depression, we're going to pick up ADHD, we're going to pick up anxiety, but the rest of you, we're still going to hate on you and we're still not going to educate people about you. And I feel like bipolar disorder was one of those disorders that kind of fell through the cracks when this acceptance train came through. And I think that really adds to this idea of like the shame that comes around all of this and the fear because I, I was like, I, I, you know, there's still so much shame and fear around it because I would see on Instagram, you know, posts about normalizing depression, anxiety, and all these things. But 
never about bipolar disorder, schizophrenia, borderline, all those other ones that people don't talk about, but are still common and happen and need just as much attention and love as the other ones. And I don't always feel like we're giving it. And so... Okay, that I love your analogy of like the train. And I, so I talk all the time about how like, I can't stand it when people say like, oh, I'm just an anxious person. Like, no, Mm -hmm. like anxiety is treatable. So like, why are we saying like, you don't have to just be an anxious person. Um, But it's the same. Like I hear people say things all the time about like, oh, well, it's not like one of those ones that's like not treatable, like bipolar. Mm -hmm. It's like, wait, who said that bipolar wasn't treatable? Like, hello. Like, we've done a lot of work to make it treatable. (laughs) Yes. Bipolar is one of those. It's obviously a lifelong condition, like every mental illness is. Yeah. But it's super, super treatable. I think I think where people get confused and where it can be hard to see it being treatable is because a lot of times when people see people with bipolar disorder, they're seeing it in Hollywood. And the way Hollywood makes bipolar disorder look, it looks like it's untreatable because typically they only show the manic sides and the mm-hmm. manic sides are quite blown up. And if I didn't know any better, I would probably think the same. If I, if my only experience was the way media portrayed it, I would probably also think that bipolar was untreatable. When in reality, I mean, it's super treatable. It's just one of those things where it can be really hard to get help because I know when I'm manic, I don't want the help because I feel fine. And I become quite resistant to treatment while I'm manic. And so I think that can make it easy for people to feel like bipolar is hard to treat. But we have so many medications and therapies. It's just allowing people to receive that treatment. And I think the way the system is set up, there are a lot of people who are struggling who don't have access to the treatments that could make their, you know, their disorder much more manageable. Right. Absolutely. Okay. So a few things that you said that I want to touch on. So the first thing is you said that when you're manicure resistant to treatment, which Mm -hmm. um, for everyone listening, that's really, really common. One of the biggest ways to treat people, like the biggest recommendations to treat people with bipolar disorder is encouraging them to take their meds. Because part of the problem is that being manic feels really good. Yes. (laughs) Like it does. It feels really good. You're you're probably very self-destructive, but you get a lot of stuff done. So with that being said, like how do you keep yourself stable? Yeah. Well, so Well, honestly, medication is probably one of my saviors. I'm very grateful for my medication. I've had the struggles of finding the right medication. I mean, I I had, I was on one medication. I was 17, maybe I was 18. I was 18 and I began lactating. And my, my, my psychiatrist said, she was like, before I went on the medication, she said, okay, so there's this one really weird side effect that happens. She was like, to 1% of people, she's like, it's not common at all. You'll be fine. And then I call the next week and I say, hi, I'm lactating and I'm 18 and I've never had a baby. Please help me because I'd be at school and I'm a small breasted lady. So I don't wear bras on that often. And I would be in school and I'd be in the middle of my day and I would just see these little dots of liquid on my shirt where my nipple was. And I would freak out because I'd be like, oh my God, how do I explain? What do I say to people when they see my, my wet nipple shirt that like 
I'm producing milk because of my antipsychotic medication. Like that doesn't sound good. You don't just say that to people. Medication is probably one of the things that helps me the most. I do therapy every single week. I've stayed really consistent with that. And at this point, therapy is really more preventative than immediate, which I think is why therapy is great. Because if you're already in a dire situation, you're not going to therapy, you're going somewhere else. But you go to therapy to prevent future dire situations from happening. And then besides medication and therapy, you know, I just fill my life with things that bring me joy. Mm -hmm. I spend time with my cats. I spend time with my boyfriend. You know, I spend time with friends. I try to get outside, you know, at, at least every now and then. Do you um, notice that it's important for you to stick to a schedule, like a routine? At one point, yes. Mm-hmm. When I was first diagnosed, a routine and schedule was really important for me. And I think part of that was because I was still learning about my diagnosis yeah. and still learning how to figure things out. I'm at a point now where I've been stable for quite a while. And so, you know, most days I feel pretty fine. Last month, they had a really hard month because the one thing is I'm pretty stable and, you know, I take care of my mental health therapy and my medication. I do my self-care. I talk to people when I'm struggling. I let myself cry when I need to cry. I do want to jump in to share with our audience a little bit of the history of bipolar disorder. So nobody really knew how to treat bipolar disorder until about the 1950s. And the 1950s is when people would treat bipolar disorder until then with antidepressants, but antidepressants actually make bipolar disorder worse. And unfortunately, a lot of the time people actually are still given antidepressants when it's not depression, not because of anyone's fault, just because like you said, you had depression symptoms from like 13 and didn't have a manic episode until 17. So no one, like no one would have known. I was put on antidepressants first, actually. Right. And so they wouldn't, they wouldn't have known any better. So basically in the 1950s, they came up with lithium, which is a drug. Lithium comes from like rocks, I think. Like, yeah, it's used in a lot of batteries too. Yeah. Like it can be like super, super uh, poisonous. Um, So I'm not a prescriber, so I can't totally speak to this, but I'm pretty sure they don't really prescribe lithium all that much anymore. But what I can say is that totally changed like the face of bipolar disorder because then people were on lithium, which is considered a mood stabilizer drug. Since then, they've come out with a lot of different mood stabilizer drugs, but that changed the game for bipolar disorder, truly. And it's funny, I teach abnormal psychology and in my abnormal psychology, when I'm teaching about the disorders, you know, I teach about the treatments and the treatment that I say for bipolar disorder is take your meds. Like bipolar disorder is one of those ones that like, you gotta be on meds. Like it it stinks, but yeah, take your meds. (laughs) Yep, for sure. You know, it's something that I've never talked about this on a podcast, but because you just mentioned it, I think I would love to. You mentioned you're an abnormal psychology professor. Well, I got my degree in psychology and something that I was not prepared for and I feel like people don't talk about is it can be really uncomfortable to sit in a class when you're learning about a disorder, when you have the disorder. Mm-hmm. I remember signing up for abnormal psychology and being really kind of anxious about it because I remember sitting there thinking, oh my God, they're going to talk about bipolar disorder. And 
I wonder what they're going to say and how is it going to make me feel about myself? And are people going to ask questions and what are their questions going to be? And then I think, oh my God, well, I can't say anything. They're going to judge me. And then all of these thoughts spiral. And every single time I had a class where I would, I mean, I'll check the syllabus to see if they talk about it first, because I felt like I had to like emotionally prepare myself to hear them talk about this thing that is impacting my life so deeply in such like a nonchalant way and in a very medical sense too. Mm-hmm. And I remember talking to my aunt, who's a therapist about it and just saying, really nervous because I've never really heard people's perspective on bipolar disorder, like outside of a family setting of people who just know me. And I remember being really anxious about it because I just didn't know how, what people would say or how they'd like yeah. react to learning about it, especially because it's one of those ones that you do learn about in abnormal psych. You do. You and do. that, and I just remember being like, oh, great, abnormal psych. That means it's the bad ones. <laughs> so I was so nervous. If they're talking about so abnormal, nervous. that means it's bad. So I mean, <laughs> I, can, I can share with you what I do. I don't know if this is right or wrong, but what I do is I, you know, I talk to my students the first day of class about, you know, being respectful of others and it's okay to ask questions, but we have to be, you know, I basically tell my students, I'm like, assume everyone in this class has these disorders and that's how we should be, you know, speaking about it. And it's okay to ask questions, you know, as long as we're doing it in like a respectful way. Do you have probably not so much anymore, but like what pisses you off the most about when you see people on like Instagram or TikTok or whatever talking about bipolar and saying obviously not a correct thing? I can tell you what pisses me off the most, even off of social media, this happens. I've had it happen many times. You will, it'll be brought up. A lot of times like I will meet someone, I'll make friends with them, and then I'll like trust them and feel like I can share that part of my story with them. And the response I get a lot is, yeah, you know, I'm pretty moody too. Like, I think I might have bipolar disorder. Uh. It always pisses me off because one, it tells me how deeply uneducated you are about it, uh. which is normal. Like, I don't expect people to understand it when I tell them. Like, I, I feel like that's asking more than... I should be just because it's not really talked about. And, and I know that, but it, it tells me how ignorant you are, but it also, it it feels disrespectful because you're really downplaying something that one, I'm trusting enough to share this piece of my life with you, a piece of my life that I don't hand out to tell people unless I'm on the internet, Um, unless I'm on the internet, but like in real life, like off of the screen, I don't typically hand over that information because I still don't know how people will react. And when your reaction is, oh yeah, me too, because, you know, I'm moody. I just, it makes me lose a little bit of respect for you, to be completely honest, because it's just a very ignorant thing to say. And I don't think anybody means it with ill intention because I do think it comes from a place of just not being educated and maybe even trying to find a way to relate to them on this experience. But it hurts because it's like downplaying a severe experience that I've had and then not taking it seriously. Well, and that's probably, and that's like, like I'm trying, like, as you've been talking, I've been trying to think of like an analogy to compare that to, but that's like, you know, if someone says like, Hey, I was diagnosed with, you know, type two diabetes, which is another lifelong disease. And you respond by being like, Oh my gosh, I love sugar. Maybe I'll get diagnosed with that. Like, that's just like, And the thing, and the thing that pisses me off the most about comments like that 
isn't necessarily the ignorance. What pisses me off more is that it sounds like you want the diagnosis. Yeah. And I don't get that. I just don't. Because when you respond like that, that's telling me that there's something you almost envy about it and that you also want to have it. And I mean, I, I wouldn't, if you would like to choose to have bipolar disorder, fine. I would not recommend that life. But that's kind of what I hear when, when I tell you, this is my diagnosis and this is what it means to me. And your response is, yeah, me too, even though I'm not diagnosed and I can't relate to really anything you're saying. You're telling me, or at least what I'm hearing you say is, I don't have that, but I wish I did. And it's just like, really? Or it's not, it's not like, like the other thing I'm thinking of is like, I'm not gonna, not that you telling people is asking people to feel sorry for you or anything like that, but it's like, yeah. I'm not going to give that any attention because like I have mood swings. Like, right. Okay. The one thing that as a person who does not have bipolar disorder, the thing that pisses me off the most, and I tell my students this, I'm like, if you say this in my class, I will ask you to leave when people use it as a slang term, like, oh, that person's yes. so bipolar. Yes. Like, that also very much. A yeah. mood swing is a mood swing. As human beings, yes. we all have mood swings. Yes. Oh my God. I bipolar disorder. That is something that if there was one thing that I could educate everybody in the world about, about bipolar disorder, it would be that having a mood episode due to bipolar disorder and being moody are different things completely. So, so different because mood swings are normal part of life. Your mood swings are fine. If you wake up in a great mood and you end your day in a crap mood, that's okay. That's like, normal. Life happens. Yeah. Exactly. Exactly. But if you wake up in a really, really incredible, amazing mood and then it lasts for like three weeks, it's not the same as mood swing. It's just not. Well, and <laughs> it's more, it can, and I find that it's hard to describe too, because it's more than just, oh, I'm in an, in an incredible mood for three weeks. Yeah. You know, it's way yeah. more than that. My, my manic episodes, I experience psychosis a lot once they're like fully developed, like a full-blown manic episode. And I don't feel like a lot of people identify psychosis happening with bipolar disorder, but I've experienced it multiple times. And that's one of the things that when people say, oh, well, you just feel great. I'm like, no, 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 I don't just feel great. I feel a lot. There's a lot I'm feeling and it starts out okay. Like at first I'm like productive and I have a lot of energy, but then I stop sleeping and then I start having psychosis and then I start getting irritable and then I start resisting treatment. And then it makes the lives of all the people I love around me really difficult. And it's, so it's not like, it's not like fun. And can you, can you explain to our listeners what psychosis is? Yes. So psychosis is essentially when you're either, you're believing things that aren't true or you're hearing things that aren't there or seeing things that aren't there. A lot of times I experienced a lot of delusions. And so I've had experience where I was not in my house, but I was sleeping in somebody else's room. We were staying at family members and they had a lot of technology everywhere. And I was manic and I had this, delusion that all the technology everywhere was just watching me mm. and then I had other times where I believed I could fly I mean I had one time where I thought that if I killed myself and I would be reborn as like a pure being without any mental illnesses and so those are scary 
That's you know? super scary. That's so, so scary. Yeah. And that's, that's what motivates me to stay on my meds because I've definitely had those experiences of like, oh my God, I wish that I could just stop my meds, be manic, get all my work done and then go back on them. Yeah. But I'm just, I can't like, I don't want to risk it. You know, it's too unpredictable. That's too scary. I like that yeah. you use the word unpredictable. I think that's a good were to use when talking about bipolar, because it can be very unpredictable, which in turn makes it very scary. So what would you tell someone who was just diagnosed with bipolar disorder? You know, now this is going to sound cliche, and it's going (laughs) to sound like a non-answer answer, but I swear it's a valid answer. (laughs) My first hospitalization in my outpatient treatment I would get so frustrated because everybody, the other patients who'd been there for a while, the doctors, everybody, they'd be like, just trust the process. And I was like, screw the process. The process sucks. Especially right. because terrible. <laughs> right. Especially because I had this psychiatrist at the time. He was incredible. He was so frustrating because I'm very A-type. And I basically told him, I was like, if you could just give me a worksheet to fill out and all my problems will be solved and I can get an A, that would be great. Like, if that could be it, I'm satisfied. And he was like, well, that's not how it works. And I was like, well, I I don't like how it works. And he would just be like, just trust the process. And I would say, screw the process. I hate that answer. That's not a valid answer. But years later, after (laughs) trusting the process, I look back on my younger self and just say, they were right. They knew what they were talking about. And so... It sounds like a non-answer answer. And it sounds like one of those things that people just say to like get you off their back when they ask you like, how do I make it better? Yeah. But it's the truth. You just have to not just trust the process, but invest in the process. Go to therapy, do the hard work, take your medication, find coping skills that work for you. That is the process. And then trust that those things are going to help. But you have to put in the effort. And so my advice is to trust the process, put in the effort, it'll be okay. Even though it may not seem like it right now, just do it. Even if you hate that I gave you that answer, just trust. <laughs> just, just do, do it, it. anyways. <laughs> exactly. Just do it. I love that. Okay. So what advice, since, since you shared a little bit about your mom, what advice mm-hmm. would you give like a parent or a family member for someone who was just diagnosed with bipolar and maybe they don't know how to handle it and they're feeling overwhelmed and like, what advice would you give them? My advice would be learn on your own you know, learn about the diagnosis, the type of diagnosis they have, because there's type one and type two. Type one has full-blown manic episodes and depression versus type two has hypomanic episodes. Hypomanic episodes are, I don't like saying a lesser form of mania, but they're just a less extreme mania. And they also come with depression. I say, educate yourself, buy the books, read the articles, but most importantly, ask the person who has bipolar, ask them, what helps you? What can I do for you in a situation where you may need help? Something that I've done with a lot of my friends and family is I've created a care plan and it's very simple. All it is, is it's two columns, one for mania and one for depression. And under the columns, I just list coping skills that I could use in a situation. These are not meant to be like during a full-blown episode of either side, but these are meant to be before a full-blown episode if you're starting to notice yeah maybe like if you're a loved one and you're starting to notice that something seems off consider making a care plan and all of this is a list of coping skills <laughs> that somebody else can help you right 
like take action on because a lot of times during an episode it's hard to help yourself and sometimes we forget what our coping skills are and or we just don't want to do them like I know my coping skills are and there are times where I'm just like I don't want to yeah I'm good and so having somebody else who can step in and be like hey I'm noticing this maybe we can go take a walk or do you want to color with me I would suggest don't make it hey, you sound crazy. I'm going to make you do this because <laughs> that's not going to help. Yeah, it's probably not going to help. Probably not a good yeah. Approach it softly, I suppose. So the other thing that I actually want to add to that advice of friends and family members is if you have someone in your life, and this goes for bipolar, and but this really goes for any mental health diagnosis, it doesn't change the person. Like the person is yes. still the person. Like Tatiana is still Tatiana. Like, the same person she's always been. And so mm-hmm. as scary as it can be and overwhelming and things like that, I think that's really important to remember. I agree. Yeah. Now I have to ask, are, are you and your mom close? My mom and I have an okay relationship. Things, there was a period of time where things were really bad yeah. and we had a lot to work on. We're in a better place now. That's great. Um, yeah, we are in a better place now. I think at first, you know, it was just a really big adjustment for me and for my parents because. I mean, I remember when I came home from the hospital, there were a lot of some restrictions. I mean, all anything I could self-harm with was locked up because I was a pretty creative self-harmer. Um, even at school, I had to ask to use scissors and all those things. And so I know for them, it was a big transition. But, you know, I think I think my mom did all the right things. She read the books. She even went to this class where cool. she was learning about mental illnesses and how to help. And so... I think she did all the right things. My relationship is probably the best it's ever been right now. That's good. And I hope it continues to improve. And that's great that she tried. It is trying, I should say. Yes. Yeah. Yeah. I think, honestly, I think the best thing a parent can do or a loved one is just, just try. You know, you're never going to understand. You're never going to be able to understand what they're going through, but you can at least be there and tell them and just show up. You might not even have to do anything. Like a lot of times when I'm upset, I don't really want someone to talk to. I don't really want to explain it. I just want someone to hold the space for me to feel what I'm feeling. And I think that's loved one, family member, friend, whatever. I think one of the best things you can do for someone who's having a hard time and literally any, not just bipolar, but anything (laughs) is just hold the space for them to feel like crap because that's what they need. They need a space to feel like crap and let all the crap out, you know? Thank you so, so much for talking about this. I hope that people are listening. Like, I just, I love hearing your perspective. I'm so amazed by everything you've gone through. I love that you, um, like, are so open and talking about it. Because, like, think how many people you're helping just by, like, normalizing it. You can find Tatiana on Instagram at Having Bipolar. She posts lots of really good stuff, lots of really helpful stuff. To end today, I like to do a little segment with guests since we're called okay-ish and we're all about being okay-ish and not perfect. I like to do a little like, let's share okay-ish moments of the week for you. And I'll share one too. And it doesn't have to be about bipolar disorder. Just like a moment where you were just okay-ish and that's okay. (laughs) Yeah. In the past week, you know, honestly... Lately, things have been really better. So I'm not going to share something from this week. I'm going to share something from last month because last month I had many more okay-ish moments. (sighs) You know, there was a few weeks where I just didn't leave the house and I was really struggling and nothing was necessarily wrong. You know, things were fine. They just weren't great. They were okay-ish. I was just sort of living and 
managing. I was actually, it felt like I was just kind of existing, to be completely honest. And so that was kind of, it was okay-ish, you know? I was surviving. I was fine. But it just wasn't the best type of fine. It was like meh fine. And you're feeling better now. <laughs> yes. Which yes. is great. Like Yes. I, thank you. I think, honestly, I think part of it was just that I needed to like leave the house and spend time with people who weren't my cats. That tends to happen. <laughs> you know? <laughs> but I love my cats. I wish I could bring them everywhere with me. I mean, understandable. I have a dog that I do bring most places with me. <laughs> oh my God, I love that. <laughs> All right. Thank you so much for being on. Again, find Tatiana at Having Bipolar. Thank you so much. Thank you. Thank you, too. Please follow me wherever you're listening to this podcast and on Instagram at OKish Podcast. Also, I would love it if you could rate the podcast and leave a review. The best way to get in contact with me is to go to okishpodcast.com and submit a comment, question. You can do it anonymously too, which is so great. I will see you guys next Monday. I can't wait.